James chapter 1 is where we are tonight. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. We've made it through the first eight verses and, and uh, we've talked a lot about trials. And really this tonight is still related to dealing with trials in life. Um, but we'll see, and we'll see. It, it seems like, a, like, is the, like there's a change in subject, but you'll see how it's, it really isn't. And, um, and so we're going to read it here together. Paul's, not Paul, James has been talking about considering it joy when we, when we fall into different kinds of trials. And he talks about, last week we talked about a lot about if, if you lack wisdom in that moment, to ask God and he'll give it to you. And now in verse 9, this is what it seems like a very to, uh, completely different subject, but you'll see that it does tie together. Verse 9, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant to, to its blossoms, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Right there, you can see he's still talking about trials, but he's, but he's somehow he's tying this idea of rich and poor believers in there. So blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has found, when he has stood the, t the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So James in his discussion on dealing with trials in life, he turns his attention to potential differences among Christians, notably specifically here the differences between rich and poor believers. Although, although they share a common bond in, in Christ, they're going to face different kinds of trials as their faith is tested. And James returns to this theme uh, throughout his letter in different places. But the trials that James has already referred to, that he, excuse me, that he, that he, the trials that he's mentioned previously, the thing about trials is they have no respect for status or wealth. You ever notice that? That it doesn't matter how much money you have or, or how poor you may be, trials are going to hit you. It doesn't make any difference. Uh, trials are the, are the great equalizer bringing all of God's children to dependence on Him. The, it, you can be the wealthiest person in the world or you can be the poorest person in the world. You're going to have to deal with trials in life. One more, now, there may be different kinds of trials. That's, that's the thing. But you're going to have to deal with it. And, that, and dealing with those trials is, is an equalizer because dealing with that and the brokenness of this world is one of the things that brings us to the place where we realize that we are completely dependent upon Him. Um, if, if we never faced any problems, we never faced any trials, we would just sail through thinking we got this, it's no problem, we're just, we got it all figured out. But when we hit the trials, it reminds us how weak we are and reminds us how much we need Him. So there's a very uh, specific purpose in trials. Even James, you know, we've already talked about that he said that trials will develop maturity in, 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 in our lives. And so, so uh, here, even though the world may apply different standards, in Christ, we speak of each other's as, uh, uh, others as brother and sisters. So somebody who's wealthy, we don't, and, and he, he talks about this later. We, we know this from Scripture that he said that, you know, to give uh, uh, preferred treatment to somebody just because they have more money. That shouldn't happen in a church. And the world may look at rich people and poor people and put them on different levels and look at and apply different standards to them. But in Christ, we are brothers and sisters. We are the same. There is, we're equal. We're, there's no difference between the rich man and the poor man when they come to Christ. And so here in this situation, some of the believers that he's writing to, remember he's writing to Jewish believers specifically, some of the believers are in are what he describes as humble circumstances. They are, they are low on the socioeconomic scale. Can anybody uh, identify with that? You know what I'm talking about. Um, and the Greek word that's translated, translated humble here, it means insignificant in the world's eyes. It means lowly, uh, relatively poor and powerless, lacking in material possessions. So these scattered Jewish Christians, remember he wrote to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So these Jewish Christians who have uh, mostly by persecution have been forced to scatter among the nations of the world. Um, 
they, especially, you know, the, those that are still in Palestine and Syria, they, they would have been in this situation of humble circumstances. Uh, they, 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 would have had, they would have been ostracized by the, by the Jews, by, the, by those, um, the, the religious leaders. They would have been ostracized. Um, and very, very often when, when someone put their faith in Christ, they were ostracized. They were disowned by their own families. And on top of that, you add to the fact that this was written during the time of famine and, and Christians, uh, like anybody else, would have suffered. But because they had been disowned by their family, probably suffered even more severely. But, but we know that this time of famine, Acts chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, one of them named Agabus stood up and, and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The, dis, the disciples each, according to his own ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. So, it's a very, de very desperate situation. In, in, they're, they're poor. Um, there's a famine going on. It's bad times. But in the middle of all this, James looks at these poor believers and he says that they should take pride in their high position. Now, that seems like an oxymoron to us because we're thinking, what, what high position? But but the, and it seems odd to us to hear the word take pride, but, but the, word, the Greek word translated take pride literally means to boast, or another way to understand it is to rejoice. Uh, and, and the word is used four times in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 in the Greek ver, uh, version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. This is what it says. It says, this is what the Lord says. Let not, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. So when he talks about boasting here, or being pride, having pride in their high position, he's not talking about boasting from, a, uh, from arrogance. But he's talking about that they should be rejoicing in the fact that contrary to the world's opinion, that God's opinion of them gives them great worth. You know, the world, generally speaking, when the world looks at poor people, they look at them and they, and they don't ascribe any worth or value to them. There's, they can't do anything for me, so there's no, I don't see any value in them. But, the, but through God's eyes, he sees people so very differently, so the poor person... Can, can understand Christ's love for him or for her, and they can begin to rejoice in the fact that even though the world looks down on them and the world says they're nothing, God says that, they are, that they're his child, that, 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 that his opinion, his value, he, his, the value he places on them uh, causes them to be of great worth. And the truth is, when it comes to boasting, how many of you ever known a boaster? Anybody known somebody who likes to boast? I'm not asking anybody, don't point any fingers or anything like that, but, but uh, the truth is, the only thing worth boasting about in this world is knowing God. That's the only thing. That's the only thing we can boast in, that I know Him. Because anything else, listen, I mean, think about it. Anything else that I do that I boast in, I'm boasting about a gift or an ability that He gave me in the first place. You know, it's always cracked me up, uh, you know, when some seven foot three guy in the NBA dunks a basketball and then he, he struts around and, you know, does Superman, you know, things and puts on this big show as if he did something big. And I'm like, you're seven foot three. You don't even have to jump, you know? And, and even the ones that are, that are not that tall that jump and dunk it, it's like, they're all excited. Like they did something. They didn't make themselves that way. You know, there's the, the, nobody before they were born went through a checklist and said, okay, I'd like to be able to jump 48 inches on my vertical. No, no, it's all given by God. The only thing that we can boast about is the fact that we know him. And, and the high position of these believers, uh, these poor believers, the great part of it is that, is that it's a present reality 
And it's not just a future hope. It's not just that, that they have a high position sometime down the road when Jesus comes back. But they, are, they are, have a high position because they are children of God. They're children of the living God. So they can rejoice in that regardless of what happens in this life. It's something that is now, not just a future thing. They may be facing trials and persecution now, but they can rejoice in a high position that, they, that they've been given as God's very own children. You know, the world may, may look at, at Christians around the world, especially outside of the Western world, but they may look at Christ followers and they may say that they lack almost everything. They don't own anything. They don't have anything. But through the testing of their faith, these believers will eventually demonstrate to the world that the truth is they are not lacking anything. If I have Christ, I lack, noth I lack nothing because I have everything I need for eternity. So, you know, the, the, what I love about, one of the things I love about Christianity is it brings a new dignity to the poor and the not so influential people of this world. I think pretty much all of us here, we fall into the category of not so influential. You might say you're poor too. Although I, I will say this, when we read this about the rich believer and poor believer, most of us here in America, we think to ourselves, oh, I'm, I'm in that poor category. But if we look at it on a worldwide scale, the truth is we're pretty wealthy. You know, compared to believers in many, many places around the world, to people in, in poverty-stricken areas, they, they can't even imagine living in a house like you live or in, in a house the size you live and eating the, the food that you eat every day. Uh, compared to most of the world, we are wealthy. So what that says to me is that when I'm reading this and, it, and he gives me, we're going to get to this in a minute, when he starts giving some cautions and some instruction for those who are rich, we probably should pay attention to that part a little more than what we usually do or what we tend to do because we look at ourselves in comparison to other Americans and we think, oh, you know, I'm not poor, I'm doing, but, but I'm not rich. Um, and, but when we look at it on a worldwide scale, maybe it changes the way we look at things. But, but Christianity brings us dignity to those who are poor. And, and it should be the most apparent in, in, a, in the church where there, where there are not and certainly should not be any class distinctions. Um, all believers share the distinction and dignity of being challenged by the gospel and being charged with the mission of taking that good news to the rest of the world. Um, that's, that's, uh, the, the reality is, no matter how much money you have or you don't have, we all come to God in the same way and we're given the same privileges to walk into the very throne room of God and we're, and we're, and we're called to the very same mission. It's all the same. Regardless of, of how much money you have or don't have, we are all equal in His sight. Whatever our social or economic situation, James challenges us here to, to see beyond it. That's, that's the essence of what he's saying, really, to both the poor and the rich believer. He's saying, yes, you're poor in the world's eyes right now, or yes, you're wealthy according to world standards right now, but he's saying, listen, that doesn't matter. You need to see beyond your current situation, and you need to be able to look at the eternal situation, look at the eternal advantages, and when you begin to realize that, when you begin to see what's there eternally, if you're poor, you begin to realize, man, I am, I am a wealthy person because of what's coming for me or as a rich person you begin to look to the eternal things and you begin to realize you know what this stuff this wealth this these things of this world they don't mean anything and that's really what he's trying to get them to do is to say in the middle of your trial you, you look beyond your circumstances and you have to look to, to the eternal situation, the eternal advantages that are coming. And what we have in Jesus Christ outweighs anything in this life, whether it's uh, our, our poor situation economically, whether it's our riches, but it certainly outweighs any trial that we face. Knowing Him gives us our high position where we find our true identity. But then He talks to the rich. And it's interesting because, you know, the rich has, a, those that are wealthy, those that are more comfortable, they have a, a different set of, of temptations that they have to deal with. You know, um, the poor person, um, I, I, honestly, the poor person might be one of the greediest people you meet because, because they have such a hunger for, for riches 
that that's what they chase after. But the, the person who is wealthy has a whole different set of, of, of temptations. And one of those temptations is to rely on the wealth uh, to, to, to bring us, uh, uh, to rely on the wealth uh, to, to carry us through, to be our, 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 the, 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 the foundation for our lives. And Jesus talked about that some. He, he, he used a really an unforgettable illustration to point out the difficulty rich people encounter in, in entering the kingdom of heaven. You all know the story, the, what Jesus told. He said uh, to his disciples in Luke 18, he said, Jesus looked at him, he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, with it, what is impossible with men is possible with God. So Jesus told the disciples, those who are listening, he says, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, uh, kingdom of God. Now, I want to say this. Uh, some people have said out there, well, that was referring to a specific gate in the city of Jerusalem. But the problem is Luke uses a different uh, term for needle here. And he actually uses the, the uh, for needle, he uses a word that describes a surgeon's needle. So it's very clear he's talking about about the difficulty for a rich person to realize that they have need of God to be able to get into the kingdom of heaven. So, uh, and when he told the disciples that this is very difficult, uh, they were incredulous. And, and the reason they were incredulous was because in the Jewish culture, they believed, they viewed wealth as a sign of God's favor. If you were wealthy, that meant that God's hand was on your life. And so, therefore, uh, it, couldn't, it was inconceivable to them that somebody who was wealthy was not going to have it. And they, they were just shocked by that. But Jesus is talking about the difficulty of someone who's rich making it into the kingdom of God. Let, let me ask you this question. Why is it so difficult for people with wealth to find salvation? They don't need anything. Yeah, they, they think money can buy everything. Money, money can solve every, every problem. You know, and listen, this verse isn't saying that it's absolutely uh, unconditionally impossible for a wealthy person to get saved. Because what Jesus is identifying here is that the problem is with the human will. It's not in God's willingness or God's ability to save. I mean, that's what he said. He said, what's impossible with men is possible with God. In other words, he's saying uh, it's impossible in the sense that... Um, that, that it's about my human will. Do I need him? Do I believe I need anything from God? Uh, do I turn to him for my help? Or do I turn to my bank account? Am I relying on my, my money to sustain me? Or am I relying on God to sustain me? Uh, and, and it's in a wealthy person, it, it just, I mean, the, the way it was stated is perfectly, I can't improve on it anymore. They don't, they don't need anything. They don't feel like they need anything. And so it's very difficult. It's impossible to get saved if you don't think you need God. Isn't it? And, and so the thing is, as the gospel spread around the Mediterranean world, some who believed would have been wealthy, both Jews and Gentiles, but he's talking here specifically to Jewish believers and, and, and to people who had that wealth, James gives a special challenge. And he, he reminds the rich believer not to measure their worth by their riches. And that's our tendency. That's what we do. You know, you ever heard the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses? You know, that's what we do. We, we, we somehow in America, we think that if I have more, if I've got more money than somebody else, then I'm more valuable. If I've got a nicer car, if I've got a better home, and we measure our stuff against other people's stuff, and, and somehow that's how we're measuring our worth by our riches. But James says to the rich person, he says, to, to not depend on their possessions for security. Don't look to your possessions or your money for joy because the problem with all of those earthly possessions, all of those earthly treasures is that they, it will not last. It will not last. I don't care how hard you work to take care of it. You know, when you get that new shirt, 
that's the nicest shirt that anybody's ever seen. When you launder that shirt, you can wash it in cold and hang and, and, and line dry it, uh, but eventually it's going to wear out. You can get that new car and you can take care of, do all the maintenance perfectly. You can wash it and, and care for it and no, don't allow anybody to eat food in there or anything. But eventually it's going to wear out. I don't care how hard you work at it. It's going to wear out. And, and, and so they, it, it will not last. And, and wealthy Christians, and I believe this applies to most of us in the room because when we look at ourselves Globally, we are, we are among the wealthiest Christians in the world. Uh, wealthy Christians, we need God's perspective on wealth. We need to have his, uh, what he sees there, uh, because if we have God's perspective on wealth, then we will use it humbly, and we will use it productively for God's kingdom and not for ours. If we see wealth properly, we will, we will be humbled by it, not made proud by it. Because first of all, I realize all of that is a blessing from God. All of it is a blessing from God. So I should be humbled by it. The more I have in the bank, the more humbled I should be by the, by the fact that God has trusted me with that. And then in response to that, then when I realize he gave it all to me. So if he says to me, I want you to give it all away. Then I can trust him to give me more, to take care of me. It's just, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's all about getting the proper perspective on it. James says that the rich person should take pride in his low position. By the way, there's a little bit of a play on words here that doesn't come across in the English translation because when he uses the word uh, lowly and low, it's really the same, same word. And so, it kind of plays off of each other, but he should. He said that the rich person should take pride in his low position. Um, um, the, and that, that low position means to be brought lower in Christ. The, 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 the thing is, the rich people are viewed as great in this world. They're viewed as powerful people in this world. But then they are made equal to the poor in God's world. Because God says, I don't care. I gave it to you in the first place. Why should I be impressed? Why should I be impressed that you have a lot of money in the bank when I'm the one who gave it to you? Right? I mean, you're impressed if, I mean, when, you, when your kids come to you and you gave them a $5 bill and they come and they try to taunt you with it. I got a $5 bill. And you look at them and you're like, I gave you that $5 bill. You know, you're not, it's not impressive to you when you're the one that gave it to him. And it's, and it's not impressive to God, you know, uh, it, we're, we're made equal. The, the only way to come to Christ is by humbling yourself before him, by admitting that you're a sinner and making him Lord of your life. And the rich believer uh, can rejoice in this low position. He can rejoice that he has learned to humble himself, to lower himself, to not look at himself as great the way the world does because he has uh, humbled himself and he's lowered himself. And that means that he's a child of God. And, and the, the idea is that a believer who is wealthy, uh, think about this. This ties very closely to the first part of this chapter. A believer who is wealthy should rejoice when, child, when trials come. Remember he said, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Well, the believer who is wealthy should rejoice when trials come because they remind him of the temporary nature of those material things. When I face that trial, when I'm reminded that's just temporary anyway. When, when I have an unexpected bill and I'm, and I'm not sure how I'm going to make ends meet or whatever, it just reminds me again, all that's temporary. But it also reminds, them, reminds the wealthy believer of their inability, of the, of the inability of those material things to give any kind of inner joy or satisfaction. You know, there, there is something that happens. When you get something new, there is a level of satisfaction right off the bat. You know, you get, you, you get your new 70-inch screen TV, and you're like, man, this is great. I love this TV. And then you do, go to a buddy's house, and they've got an 85-inch one. 
And all of a sudden, the thing that brought this great joy and satisfaction, you're thinking to yourself, man, I need an 85-inch. Mine's not as big as theirs. It's not as good as theirs. And, and that's the problem with, with looking to wealth and material goods for your joy, for your satisfaction. They just cannot satisfy. In fact, I'm going to talk a little bit about it Sunday, um, or maybe not Sunday, one of these coming Sundays, uh, looking ahead at some things, because uh, I'm going to mention the fact that in, in Ecclesiastes, it talks about how God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. And I believe what that means is that there's a place in us that can only be filled with eternal things. And, and it doesn't matter how many uh, goods and, and how much money you try to stuff in there, it's not eternal and it's never going to satisfy. You will never be satisfied. That's why you, you know, you, you've heard about wealthy people when somebody asks them, well, how much money is enough? And they always say, well, $1 more. Because it will never satisfy. It's impossible. You cannot satisfy them. And, and so... Um, so the wealthy believer should take pride in their low position. And that means because they've humbled themselves that, and uh, they have been accepted by Christ and they can take pride. They can rejoice in the fact that they are not all of that, but they are humbled there. They, they should take pride in that because they've been given the privilege of identifying with Christ and suffering along with other believers. And so they take pride in their low position because their chosen humility for the present will be rewarded in eternity. Um, see, we have to get a right perspective on our finances, on our wealth, on our possessions, because wealth and, and even the abilities that God gives us that lead to wealth, it, it can, they can create a barrier between God and us. If we are rich, or, or even if we live uh, what we modestly call a comfortable lifestyle, we need to really remember what, what is said. Of, of the rich man, James says here, as the flower of the field, he will pass away. It, none of it lasts. None of it lasts. And, and really that phrase echoes Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. This is what it says. It says, all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the, Lord blow, breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord, excuse me, the word of our God stands forever. See, see wealth uh, brings a false security. And, you know, and, and I'm looking around here. I don't know anybody in here that, that has a lot of wealth. You know, so, you know, maybe you don't have as much uh, false security, but, you know, somebody who is who is very wealthy, they have this false sense of security. But it, but it's, it says here in, in the desert, it uses an illustration in the desert. This is something that happens. This is a real life thing. Uh, a, a rain shower will come and, and it will cause the grasses and the flowers to 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 sprout almost instantly. I mean, it'll turn green overnight. The flowers will come out and it looks so beautiful. But then all of a sudden the rain is gone and that hot wind begins to blow and the sun comes out. And, and when that scorching sun hits them, they wither and die and it just doesn't last. And God is saying through his word, he's saying to us, that's exactly what your money and possessions are like. They're just gonna, when, when the hard time comes, when the sun comes out, it's just gonna fade away. It's just not going to last. The, the, the abundant comfort and security of one moment is gone in the next. And if you haven't experienced it, you've probably known somebody who has walked through that. One word can change your life forever. The death of someone that, was, that you were counting on, you know, disease that hits, that wipes out your, your bank account and, and, and puts you in, in debt for years to come. Uh, you know, the company that says we're downsizing or, or divorce comes and hits and changes everything. The problem with our wealth, the problem with it all is that it, it, it all fades away. And, and if you try to build your life on a foundation of that, it's all fading away. And a foundation built on that crumbles. James 1.11, we read it earlier. James describes it. He says, For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away 
even while he goes about his business. And what James is describing there is really a common occurrence in the Middle East. And I kind of already mentioned it, you know, colorful desert flowers bursting from the cool night. And often you'll see them in the morning as they pop up there. But then their death is sudden in the sun scorching heat. And can also refer to what's known as a Sirocco, which is a, 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 a hot southeast wind that blows straight off the desert. Uh, how many of you ever been baking something? on a really high temperature and you open the oven door and you get that blast of hot air that hits you in the face. You, ever, you know what I'm talking about? That's the Sirocco. I mean, that's that, that blast of oven hot air that's just blown across the, 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 the landscape and the, plant, the plants just wither away in it. And James says that a rich person can fade away just like that, like those plants. But he says he, they can fade away even while he goes about his business. If you're going about your business, what that tells me is you're, you just, you're not even aware that it's going to happen. You're just going through your day, doing your normal stuff, making money, doing whatever you're doing. And, it just, and you can fade away. Life, the truth is, life is uncertain. Can I get an amen? Disaster is possible at any moment. And the word translated business literally means goings. It's just like wherever you're going, as you're going along, death interrupts our schedule, our, our busyness, our best laid plans. Death always intrudes. It's not going to last. And James reminds us in the middle of all of this, in the middle of the trials that you face, which the trial to me is like that scorching wind that's blowing across the desert landscape. He, he reminds us that in the moment where you're facing that, that blast of hot air, that, the, that, the, that our only lasting security is in a relationship with Christ. We must not trust what money and power seem to guarantee because that will not last. And it's foolish to trust in what will not last, isn't it? The psalmist gives us an appropriate prayer. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. But I love, love, love the way the New Century Version translates that verse, because it really helps us get it. It says it like this, Teach us how short our lives really are so that we may be wise. If we can understand how short our lives are, we will use our days more wisely. But, you know, I mean, I wish I'd have, I wish I'd have figured at least a little bit of that out when I was 18. You know what I'm talking about. When you're 18, nothing bad is going to happen. You know, I've got forever. I can do that later. <laughs> you know, how many of you know, are like me, you've got a list of things that you were going to do later that you never did? Yeah. Well, the truth is, whether the number of our days turns out to be large or small, each should be lived to the glory of God. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's all about him. Here's some of the lessons that, from these, these verses. Uh, uh, the poor should be glad that riches mean nothing to God. Because otherwise, poor people would be considered unworthy. If riches matter to God and I was poor, I'm in trouble. But So the poor pe person can be glad that riches don't matter to God. But you know what? The rich person can be glad that riches mean nothing to God. It's the same thing. Because wealth is easily lost. If my riches matter and that's what buys me a, a grace with God, then, then what happens when it gets wiped out? So, so both, of, both people, rich and poor, should rejoice in the fact that riches mean nothing to God. We find true wealth by developing our relationship with Jesus, not by developing our financial assets. Not that there's anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with, with investing. There's nothing wrong with developing your financial assets. But in the middle of all that, we have to always remember that is not the source of my security. My security is only found in Christ, in Christ alone. So I think the question for all of us, we all have to ask ourselves is, what do you trust? 
In, in what do I place my trust? Now, it's easy to say, oh, I trust Jesus. But how we live and our attitude toward different things will tell us a lot more about the reality of where our heart is. Because believers trust God and not wealth for their security, they're free to use wealth in God's service. If you struggle with, with, with offerings, with love offerings, with giving money away, if you struggle with that, then you know maybe it's because you haven't really captured the full perspective, a full, the fullness of God's perspective on that wealth. Maybe you still think it belongs to you when the truth is, according to the New Testament, it all belongs to Him. Right? Neither material possessions nor lack of them really is of any ultimate consequence. In the long run, in eternity, it makes no difference if, I've, if I have a billion dollars in the bank or if I have nothing to my name. Ultimately, it means nothing. No consequence whatsoever. And, and if your grip on this life's treasure is really tight, and that's what we have to learn. We have to learn to hold things loosely. You know, because what we tend to do is we grip onto it and we're like a, we're like a toddler who's, who's running around saying, mine, mine, mine. But we need to learn to live our lives with our hands open, with a loose grip on all that we have where we're holding it out to God. And if he, any moment he says, here, I want this. I want to I use this to do something over here in the kingdom that we say, all right, here it is. I'm not going to grab onto it. I'm not going to hold on to that. But if your grip on, life, on this life's treasure is very tight, it may be a sign that you are ignoring what God says about your own mortality and, and, and what God says about your eternity. And, and you could end up missing out on what Christ has for you. You say, well, well, where do you get that? Well, I get that from the story of the rich, rich young ruler. Rich young ruler, you all know him. I mean, he came to Jesus and said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wanted to know, how do I earn it? It was already off the, off the mark from the very beginning. And in Jesus, knowing what was in his heart, the Bible says, remember what he told him? He said, one thing you lack, go and give away all of your wealth to the poor and come follow me. And, and anybody remember what it says? It says, the young man went away very sad. Well, that rich young ruler did not follow Jesus because his wealth got in the way. He missed out on what Christ was offering to him. The Bible says Jesus loved him. Specifically says that. It means he saw something in him. There was something that Jesus was attracted to in that young man. He, he probably could see all the potential and all the things that he could do for the kingdom of God if he would just, just be, release his grip on that false God of money and wealth and follow him and and yet he, he couldn't do it. He missed out because he couldn't bring himself to trust God more than he trusted his riches. He had to be willing to forsake that false God before he could honestly follow the true God. But, but the good news of this whole passage is in verse 12. Because it tells us that whatever our earthly estate, rich or poor, the best, the best is yet to come. Isn't that good news? That, you know, that's good news when things are bad, right? But it's even better news when things are great. You know what I mean? Because listen, if, if, I'm having, if I have the best day I've ever had in my life, and I'm thinking, wow, it just can't get any better than this. And then I remember, wait a minute, the best is yet to come. Eternity is even better than this. It's awesome. Verse 12, he said, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And the, the, the common usage of the Greek word translated blessed or blessed, it described happiness, uh, the happiness of, of a carefree life. You know, you know, think about that. I mean, uh, a carefree life, what does that mean? That means I don't, I don't have to worry about anything. That's what he's saying. If you follow Jesus you can cast your cares upon him. You, you can live uh, free of I'm not saying, you know, that you never have a worry cross your mind, but you, you don't worry about where you're going in life. You don't worry about eternity. And so you can live a blessed, happy life because of that. And, and, but, the, but that whole word, that word blessed, 
The Bible deepens that meaning to include, include a deep joy that comes from receiving God's favor. In fact, it's the same word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes, which, by the way, there's a, there's a pretty close relationship to what, between what James teaches and the Beatitudes, which would only make sense since he's the half-brother of Jesus and he would have heard the Sermon on the Mount, so he would have, he would have included that in there. But James says that the man who perseveres under trial is a man who is filled with joy. You know, um, I, I, I can't speak of this from personal experience, uh, but athletes train really hard. <laughs> you can look at me and say, yeah, I see that you don't, you're not speaking from personal experience. But, uh, but, but athletes persevere in their training. You know, you, you see some of these phenomenal world-class athletes and you think, wow, they make it look so easy. Well, that's because they have worked tremendously hard. They persevere in their training in order to improve their abilities, in order to improve their endurance for whatever the competition may be. And Christians persevere in spiritual training, enduring the, trial, in, enduring the trials, um, that, that, that will, and that will bring maturity and completeness. You know, you know today's, here's the thing about today's trials. Today's trials will seem like training when we face tomorrow's challenges. And, and that's what we have to remember. In the middle of it, you know, every trial that we face, every trial that we patiently endure with faith, with faith and trust in Jesus, every one of those trials prepares us for the next thing that life hurls at us and, and prepares us for the next step of growth and maturity in Christ. And I will say this, listen, it's not just going through the trials, but it's going through the trials in the right way with patience and perseverance and putting your faith and trust in God. See, if you just go through a trial and complain the whole way, you're not going to grow. You're not going to grow. And guess what? You're going to have to go through another trial just like that because the Lord's going to say, okay, well, you didn't get the first time. Let's try again. But if I go through it the right way and the Lord grows me and he matures me in that process, then I, tomorrow or the next day or next week or whenever it comes, I'm going to face a different trial and it's probably going to be bigger. It's probably going to be more difficult. It's probably going to be more heartrending in, 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 my, in my life. But in response to that, I will have already gained strength and I'll be ready to walk through that with patient endurance and with faith and trust in Jesus. And I'm going to grow that much more. And the way to get into God's winner's circle is, is to love him and to stay faithful, even under pressure. Even under pressure. And you know what? Perseverance is one of the surest evidences of a true love for God. A genuine Christian is not someone who at one point in their life made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. That's nothing more than a beginning point. But a genuine Christian is a person who demonstrates true faith by an ongoing love for God that cannot be damaged, much less destroyed, by troubles and afflictions, no matter how severe or long-lasting. A person like that has stood the test. But you know the good news is? Not only from this passage, but I love it from Hebrews chapter 12. The good news is there's a finish line. There's a finish line. We're, we're not going to be in this, in this cycle of trial and trouble and tribulation and heartache and pain forever. There is a finish line. Hebrews, it says, to run the race marked out before you. Well, the good, good news about a race is there is a finish line. This is not all there is. This is what helps us keep moving, keep going forward. There is a finish line. Someday the test will all be over. And James, what he says here in, in all of this, in, in chapter one, it really, the, his words really speak against an emphasis on instant results. And we, in America, in our modern world, we love instant results, don't we? I mean, we do. I've talked about it before. One of my favorite kind of uh, uh, illustrations slash jokes is, is that we got a popcorn button on the microwave. You know, I remember when I was a kid, if we wanted popcorn, my dad went in there and stood with a pan and shook it back and forth, you know, in the oil. And you stood there and waited, 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 and just finally came. Once in a while, if you got really lucky, you got the Jiffy Pop. 
you know, but that still took a long time to pop it. You know, now you just throw it in there and hit a button and, you know, two and a half minutes later, you, you got a thing full of popcorn. You, we, we love the instant. We, we're, we live in the, in the age of fast food. We live in the age of, of instant information at, the, on our, at our fingertips. Everything is now, 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 instant, 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 uh, uh, instant results. But you know what? The, the goals of faith and endurance and maturity... Those things can only be found with the passage of time. There are no shortcuts to maturity. That's, we, we get that physically, but it's true spiritually. You know, a five-year-old doesn't become a 21-year-old overnight. You have to have the years, right? And if we're going to grow in the Lord, it's not just something where all of a sudden I say, well, you know, I'm going to get serious about my walk with God. And I read six chapters and pray uh, 20 minutes. And, and all of a sudden I'm like, man, I am a man of God now. No, no, it takes time. It takes the passage of time. It takes that, it's that endurance. And how is endurance developed? It's developed by, the, by when you keep going over time. Now, God offers to help us along the way. The good news is it's not just, he's not just saying, okay, come on, gut it out, be strong, you can do it. He says, no, I want you to endure, but I'm going to empower you to do it. I'm going to walk with you on this. When you're too weak, I'm going to be supporting you. I'm going to give you strength that you don't even know anything about right now. I'm going to walk this with you. And, and, and he he chooses not to tell us how long our personal race will be, nor does he tell us what obstacles we will face. Probably for good reason, because most of us, if we saw, I'm telling you right now, if in the last two years of my life, if I had seen some of the trials that I may have had to, had to that I was going to have to deal with in the last, well, I don't know, four or five years in my life, if I had seen that 20 years earlier, I might have said, no, thank you, God. You know, anybody know, can anybody relate with that? So he didn't tell us beforehand, and that's wisdom on his part. But you know what we are told? We're told, run the race. Run the race. Don't give up. You will reap a harvest in due time if you don't give up. And we're directed to run that race with finishing on our minds. You know, when somebody, when a runner starts a race, especially in a marathon runner, they're not, they're not thinking about to themselves, well, I hope I can make it a mile. No, they start the race with the idea in their mind that I'm going to finish this thing. They don't just say, well, I hope to. They have the finish in mind. And he says that the one who endures will receive a crown of life. And that, that idea of a crown is borrowed from athletics. And it, it was the wreath placed on the victor's head in athletic events symbolizing persevering triumph. And what, what we know is that all who finish the race by keeping their faith in the face of suffering and temptation will be declared winners. The good news is in this race, you're not running against me and I'm not running against you. I'm running against the course that he lays out in front of me. That's, that's my only goal. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fulfill God's calling on my life. I want to run the race he puts in front of me. I want to turn when he says turn. I want to, I want to run, I want to sprint when he says sprint. I want to go right when he says go right. I want to do all that he says to do. And in the end, if I will just run that race with the idea of saying, I'm going to finish by the grace of God, with the help of the spirit, I'm going to finish. Then, then when I reach that finish line, it makes no difference if, if somebody else had a longer race or a shorter race, or if they ran faster than me, I'm going to win. I'm going to get the crown of life. I'm going to get that wreath. Makes me think of a story of, a, from, of an Olympic runner several, several years ago. Hours behind the runner in front of him, the last marathoner finally entered the Olympic Stadium. By that time, the, the drama of the day's events was almost over and most of the spectators had gone home because most of the events were over. But this one particular athlete's story was still being played out. 
limping into the arena, the Tanzanian runner, grimaced with every step. His knee was bleeding and, and bandaged from an earlier fall. And as he ran in, into that stadium and started making his way around that track toward the finish line, his, his, his ragged appearance immediately caught the attention of, of, of all of the remaining crowd, the few that were still there. They saw him and they saw his condition and they, and, and they just cheered him onto the finish line. And the question was, why, why did he stay in a race? He was, he was last. He had fallen. He had, he had messed up his, his knee. He was injured. He had every reason not to finish. Why, what made him endure his injuries to the end? Well, it was interesting because he was asked by reporters when he finished. He was asked those very questions. This was his reply. He said, my country did not send me 7,000 miles away to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish it. Jesus didn't call you out of sin to start the race. He called you to finish it. That's what he wants for us. And when we do that, we'll receive that crown of life. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have called us and that we are each running a race that you've called us to run. And, and Lord, in the middle of that race, we know, Lord God, that it's, our competition is not with each other. Our competition is not with anything else or, or anybody else in this world. But, Lord, we, we run this race with one goal in mind, and that is to endure to the end, to finish. And, Lord, not, not to try to be strong on our own, but, Lord, to rely on your strength and to to receive the power of your spirit, to be able to continue to run in those moments when we are too weak in ourselves. Lord, we know that you will empower us. You will give us supernatural strength. You, you, will, you will cause us, you will give us strength, Lord, to, that where we can rise up like eagles and we can run and not be weary and we can walk and not faint because we wait on you, Lord God. And, and Lord, we just, I just thank you that, that you have placed this before us. And God, whether we are rich or poor makes no difference. All we know is that trials come for all of us. We all face these different issues. But Lord, in the face of that, in the face of that hot desert wind blowing on our life, I pray that we'd be encouraged today to say, Jesus, you saved me not to start the race, but you saved me so that I would finish the race. So Jesus, by your strength, with your help, I will not quit. Lord, I pray that there would be people encouraged by this tonight, people strengthened by your spirit. And we give you praise in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.